Okay, so this fall, we were in 2 Corinthians before we left. And for whatever reason, God just made it very clear to me, we're not going to be in 2 Corinthians when we came back. So this study that we're going to do through this fall, I've titled it In the World But Not Of It. We live in this world. We live in this world every single day. Jesus said these words, we are in the world but not of it. What does that mean? I think you probably feel the reality of that in your soul. Maybe you don't know it. And so as we go week by week, I'm thinking that we as the people of God should know how to live in this world but not be of this world. And so we're going to take some time and look at that. Today, we're going to start with this idea, this question, does God have the right? Genesis 22 is where we'll be when we get to the time uh, to look into the Word of God in a minute. But I want to start by uh, talking about this. When we traveled over the past month, I was thinking, I was just on the road. You got a lot of time to think when you're on the road, and Dana and I are talking about different things or whatever. But I thought, you know, we really live in an amazing time with technology and such, right? Because here I am driving down the road with a, with a phone sitting on my dashboard telling me when I will get where I'm going 15 hours from now or whatever it is, right? And telling me when there are problems ahead. Like a little thing comes up, like a really polite person comes up and says like, there's a delay ahead. Would you like to skip it? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> I actually would. That would be awesome, right? Back in the day, we didn't get that. I drove back and forth to Florida a lot going to college. Man, I can't tell you how many times I sat in traffic that I had no idea what the problem was, how long I was going to be in here. Like you've said, have you sat in these traffic jams where it's like the car is still for so long that you put it in park and turn it off? And then you get out of the car to look down the road and see what's going on down there, which of course you can't see because the problem's way further down the road. But I've been in those. I've been, I was in a traffic jam so badly one time on the Northeast extension of the, the Pennsylvania Turnpike. They actually, after four hours of sitting, stopped. They turned the cars around one by one and had them go back down. I mean, those are the kind of traffic jams that were very, very normal. Nowadays, you put something into your GPS and it says, there's a problem ahead that'll cost you three minutes. Would you like to take this side road? I'm like, yes, I would. As a matter of fact, one of them, <clears throat> we were in Virginia and there was like a, an hour long backup on I-95. So it took us off to the side road, which basically paralleled 95 for like three or four miles. And we went down it and then we, it dropped us back in at the, at the end of the traffic jam. And I, I cannot tell you the amount of pride that flooded my soul. As I drove down and I looked on my little GPS thing and there's a red line over here and I'm thinking, ah, I'm so much better than all of you as I zipped past them. It was such a fulfilling feel. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, man, I've got the secret, right? And then I thought a little bit, and we talked about this with Dana a little bit, would it be great if our lives had the same kind of navigation tool that could tell you when there's trouble ahead or if the road that you're taking is the wrong road? If it's going to bring you to a place you don't want to be, if it's going to wreck you or, or delay your life or mess everything up, I mean, the stakes of driving on the road are losing a couple hours, but the stakes of following the, the, the wrong pathway in your life could mean the end of a relationship. It could mean the destruction of your self-esteem. It could mean hopelessness, despair. It could, I mean, it could be horrifying what it means if you take the wrong road. As I've talked to people and as I've lived life, people try on different ways to navigate life. Some people have told me, this is my philosophy and this is how I navigate life. I try always to expect the worst. Have you ever met somebody like this? I try always to expect the worst 
And then if it doesn't happen, I'm pleasantly surprised. Has anybody ever met somebody like this? Maybe some of you are this person. Just pretend you met somebody like this, right? Now, how does that person live? Are they just always pleasantly surprised? Because how many times does the worst actually happen? Never, right? And very, very rarely. But you live like the worst is coming all the time. So you're just living constantly disappointed, right? And then when the disappointing thing isn't so disappointed, you're just less disappointed. Like that's a great life, isn't it? This is how people, people will try to navigate their lives by looking at the bottom line of their bank account. How safe and secure am I? How, how much uh, flexibility do I have? What can I do in my life? Other people try to chase pleasure, the, the, the joy of life, the fun things in life. People make family the center of their life. Well, you can't go wrong if family is the center of your life. I know people who've had a showdown between family and church, and because family is their guiding principle in life, family wins and church loses. That's, this is the navigation that we do in life. How do you know if you're making the right choices or not? You want to make sure that you have a navigation system that helps you. At the bottom of all these things is the idea that as human beings, it is normal for us to have an unhealthy and overblown sense of our own rightness. That what I think must be true. Some of us are in conflict right now with other people and it's because we just have an overblown sense of our own rightness. That everything I think is right and therefore you need to hear from me. We believe that we have a reliable guide and it's kind of always me. Maybe I'm listening to somebody else, but I listen to them because they think like me. How many times I've heard people say, I like listening to them, they think like me. Well, that sounds redundant, doesn't it? I have a reliable guide for my life, me. Yeah, many of us have lived enough life to know that that's not how it works, right? Now, on the way down, I, I skipped that hour delay, but on the very next trip, I, have a, I know my way to Florida pretty well. So I'm driving down the road. I have an expected path that I'm going to do. I'm going to take this road. And GPS says there's a delay ahead. And I thought, ha-ha, here I am again, superhero, right? Yes, I will take the shortcut. So it diverts me off my normal path. Now, when we got to the place where I would normally have gone this way, but I wound up going this way, I happened to glance over at my GPS. And the road that I was going to take originally was shaded out. And the little note next to it said, 16 minutes faster. And I thought, GPS, you have betrayed me. How dare you? I, you, I was going to take that road, and now you told me to take this one, and I took this one, and then you're kind of mocking me with this little note, like, you could have been there faster. I wonder how much of the stress and strain of our life comes down to that surprise you might not be as right as you think you are. The people you're following and emulating might be taking you to a place you don't want to be. The stuff you're hearing and listening to, the, the thoughts that you're reflecting on in your own mind may not be where you want to go and how tragic that will be. So I would say there are pretty high stakes for who's guiding your life. Whose navigation are you going to trust? Because if you've picked the wrong one, the cost is high, really, really high. So today, as we jump into this, I want to ask you, what if what you're doing, because you're, you're, does anybody here feel like their life is a little heavy, like there's some stress and strain? Anybody? Is there a few people? There are a couple people here that feel like, yeah, just a few. Okay, so that's good. We're a pretty light bunch. 
What if the things that you're doing to try to make your life feel lighter are actually taking you to a place where it's actually heavier? I know people who avoid conflict thinking that they're staying calm and peaceful and they live so tense in fear of what could come. What if what you're trusting isn't helping? What if it's not taking you where it's promising? I know young people are like, I want freedom. I want to make my own choices. I want to be independent. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I don't want God to tell me what to do. I'm going to live however I want. And it promises this freedom and this independence, and it winds up bondage. Because no matter how much of your freedom you get, you always want more. And no matter how much the, the pleasures of this life or the independence of this life or the pride of this life you, you experience, you always want more. So you're chasing, chasing. It becomes your master. It becomes your, your, your prison. You have to keep going and going and going. It crushes you eventually. So for believers, the way we answer this question is different. We are in the world, but not of the world. Who is right to guide your life? Those who follow Jesus have one answer, and those who don't have a different answer. And they're not equal. These answers are not equal. Everybody gets to choose which answer you want, but they're not the same. They're not equal. One will take you to destruction. The other one will take you to redemption. One will take you to life, and the other will take you to death. Is God right? Is God right? Does he have the right to claim that he should be the guide for people? Does he have the right to say no to you? Say, you're not allowed to do that. Or you're not allowed to not do that. You need to do that. Does God have the right to dictate to us? Does God have the right that when we pray and ask him for something to say, no, I'm not giving? Does God have the right to be God, to be Lord? As believers, we say yes. In our world today, people say God's telling me you can't do this, you can't do that. Who does God think he is? How, how in the world would I have to surrender? I don't want to believe in a God like that, right? This is the way that the world thinks. Or they ask, how can God say no to something that we need, something we think is good, something we think is fair? How could God in the world but not of the world is a phrase that Jesus says, and it's a way that we're trying to express the reality that believers are different. We live with different eyes. We live in a different hope. And so we should not be surprised when those who don't follow Jesus don't agree with us. This is some of what's tripping Christianity up. We're so surprised that people who don't follow Jesus don't live like Jesus tells them to. I don't think the problem is that people who don't follow Jesus don't live like Jesus tells them to. The problem is that people who do follow Jesus don't live like Jesus has the right to tell us what to do. And this is where we have a choice. Will we acknowledge his right or not? We could go many places in scripture to talk about this, where God asks a big ask, and then people are called to follow in faith. We get all kinds of places. Joseph, the story of Joseph that dominates Genesis 37 to 50. We could go to the story of Esther. We could go to the story of Daniel. We could go to the story of David. We could go to the story of Ruth and Naomi. We could go to the story of Jeremiah. We, like, we could go to the story of, of uh, uh, in the New Testament, Stephen getting stoned to death for standing up. We could go to the story of the persecutions of Paul. We could go to the story of Jesus. These things, God has big asks for his people. 
over and over and over and over again. And for the nation of Israel, there's battles they marched into. Listen, I want you to go to the, to the Jordan River. I want you to get ready to march and I want you to put your foot in the water. The water won't do anything until you put your foot in the water. Big ask, right? I want you to march around the city to watch the walls fall. This is the big asks of God. Does God have the right and is he right to ask us? these things. Today, we're going to look at this story in Genesis 22. And when we read this story, God may never ask you anything like this, but I have a feeling God is going to ask you something almost exactly like this. In other words, God may not ask you to take this action, but I guarantee he's going to ask you to some kind of a sacrifice, some kind of a big ask, some kind of a faith required response. We can fall into the category of thinking that as we read stories like this about Abraham, Abraham's a hero. He's like a Marvel movie. Isn't this awesome? Look at Abraham. He's just, you know, doing all this awesome stuff. He's, he's a different kind of person than us, right? It's not recorded in Scripture so that we will marvel at his heroics. It's put in Scripture so that we can be identifying with him and we can be challenged to the faith that he reflected. This is a faith that grew over time in him. And it's a faith God wants us to grow in as well. What it challenges us to is whether we believe in our rights or God's rights. Whether we believe in our rightness or his rightness. Here's what God does. Verse one, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, now think about what he's saying here. Just think about these words. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. That's a monumental ask. That's a horrifying ask from God. He says, I want you to take the son, the child that I promised you, the one whose birth was so miraculously and so, so miraculous and so unthinkable that you, his very name, Isaac, means laughter. Because when I told you you would have a son, you laughed. And I want you to remember that, that God does the impossible. That son, the one that you love, not the problematic child who was sent away in the chapter before, Ishmael, the one that was causing strife in your family, not that one, the one that you've already gotten rid of. No, this one, that all of your hopes are pinned on, that the foundation of all God's purpose in your life has been, been, been built around, this declared purpose that God has for you, this promise. I want you to take that one. And I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to put him to death. I want you to make him a burnt offering. By the way, burnt offerings were pretty normal. So they were really familiar with what a burnt offering does, looks like, feels like. And now God's saying, take Isaac, make him a burnt offering. Let him go. Offer him up completely. Destroy him beyond repair. What do we think about that? What do we do with that? Does God have the right? How dare he? No, God is God. When God asks the unthinkable, then what do we do in response? Certainly God would never ask us to sacrifice or do something beyond what we think is good. I think he does all the time. 
to ask where our faith is, who our faith is in, whose understanding is guiding our life, what navigation system we're relying on. What if he asks me to surrender a sacrifice that seems unthinkable? Something that is permanent, something that is consuming, something that is confusing. What if God asks me to upend everything I thought I knew about my life? Would God have the right to do that? And would he be right if he did? We float along in life acting like we believe that until God asks us to do something we don't want to do or something we don't understand. And then we say, God, how could you? Remember this. As God asks for Isaac, as God asks Abraham to to offer Isaac, one of the things that I think is foundational to Abraham's response is this. Abraham is very aware that everything God asks from us, he already gave us first. There's nothing you can hold back from God that he didn't give you first, right? If God asks for your time, who gave you this day? Who gave you this life? If God asks for your talents, who gave them to you? If God asks for your finances, who gave them? Like, there's nothing that God would ask from you that he didn't give you first. And so in that, there's a very simplistic understanding that God has the right to ask for what he initially is the source of and for, to ask you to let go of it back to him. That's where we start. Now, what would you do if God came to you with an ask, ask like that? What would you say? I think I would have some questions, wouldn't you? I might be like, excuse me, Lord. I think I heard you, but I couldn't possibly have heard you correctly. So could we talk about, I'm going to need a little bit of help getting my head around this whole thing. Because we would want to understand and, and, and we would want to have conversation. And maybe Abraham did that, but we don't see any of that. In the story here, I want you to see the response from Abraham. There's no debate. There's no pushback. There's just an acting. Like as the people of God, God has the right to ask us for our most precious things. Verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day... Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went up together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father. Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took his knife to slay his son. Do you feel that? We don't get Abraham throwing a fit, 
Previously in Abraham's life, we see Abraham not understanding God and taking matters into his own hands and before Pharaoh and before Abimelech lying about his wife and, and, and you know, and with Hagar, God's, the promise hasn't come through, so I got to provide my own son and, and then Hagar becomes trouble and I got to fix that, so I'm going to throw her out. Like We see Abraham solving his own problems over and over and over again. But here, it's at the end. So if you're like, well, I don't have that kind of faith. What I'm not saying is you need that kind of faith right now. What I'm saying is that's the direction we need to go. Where we trust God like this. Abraham is much later in life. He's about 100 years old, maybe 115, something like that at this point in life. He's lived some life and he's learned some lessons. And those lessons are being provided to us. The book of Proverbs tells us over and over that, that those who are wise learn from the experience of others. So we're supposed to read this and we're supposed to learn from it so we don't have to walk 100 years or more to figure out how to trust God like this. This is the invitation that we are given to trust God like this. So it says he gets up early in the morning and he starts putting together things to do what God asked him to do. Just an incredible response of submission and surrender. Hey, I'm gonna need some help. Here's the animal that's going to carry the stuff. I need to cut some wood. I need to get a knife. I need to get my son. And we need to start marching towards this place that God gave us where my son is going to be put to death by me. And they walk on and they see the mountain in the distance and they start walking up the mountain. And, and Isaac, you carry the wood on your back that I'm about to put you on top of. I build an altar. I tie my son. I pull out the knife. Abraham is not some abnormal person. He had all the feelings that you and I did. The question is not, what's wrong with Abraham? Why is he different from us? The question is, why is Abraham, who is like us, willing to do this? And the answer to that question is, he knew God had the right, and he believed that God was right. How does he get to that kind of faith? Well, I think the answer is in what he said they're going to do. We will go worship. We will go worship. Worship is a time in which we act like, speak like, think like, respond like. God is worthy of trusting, following, obeying. I will rest in the Father's hands. I'll leave the rest in the Father. That's a statement of trust, isn't it? Right? That's like... I'm going to believe you're the potter, I'm the clay. I'm trusting you. It's a time where we rehearse what we say we believe is true. Worship is that God has the right to tell me what to do and what not to do. He has the right to override my understanding and my will. He has the right to be right even when it seems to me like he's wrong. And it's something that we need to practice. It's not something we drift into. It's not something that happens because suddenly we had some revelation and it's easy to just trust God. It's a battle that we fight against an enemy who wants you rather to trust yourself than the one who has hope open power for you. He wants you to be stressed. He wants you to be weighed down. He wants you to think it's all on your shoulders, but you're the people of God. And by faith, he's got it. If we'll give it to him. So what does the enemy say? What are you going to do about that? Oh no, time's running out. Like, have you heard these whispers? Oh man, that looks bad. You don't want that to happen. You better, you'd better go fix it. Rush. Panic, fear. Practicing worship in your life is not so that you can be charged up and feel good. I know some people are like, man, worship just filled me up today. I'm glad. And I'm not saying it doesn't do that. But that's not why we do it. 
We don't do it so you're all like, I'm the Energizer Bunny and I'm going out, woo, woo, worship, yay. We do it because we need it. If we're going to go out there and live like God has the right to tell me what to do in my life and God is right, whatever he asks me to do, then I've got to have some place where I practice that on a regular basis because it's got to get through this thick head, right? And if I don't practice it, I'm going to drift back into the way that I thought before I knew Jesus, which is like, I'm right. And I'll take your advice if I like it. But if I don't, I'm going to keep going with me. Thank you very much. Worship is a practice. When we say we're going to live in this world but not of it, worship is an essential part where we practice surrendering our will, proclaiming our God, practicing our submission to him. And it starts at the very beginning in salvation itself. Becoming a child of God lies in my willingness to submit and surrender to his goodness and his faithfulness for his judgment to be true in me, to allow God to save me to ask him to pour out his grace on me, not because of my own rightness, but because of his rightness. So worship, worship was enough of a practice that as they're walking up the mountain, Isaac says to his dad, now dad, we do this all the time. I think you forgot something. Like Isaac's looking around, he's like, you got this, you got this, you got this, you're missing something. So obviously it's enough of a practice that Isaac knows the deal. And it's enough of a practice that Isaac says to his father, why is something missing? But on top of just a practice that's a habit, there's this belief that God will be faithful and good, that God is right in what he asks. Abraham's reasoning, best I can tell, is this. If God gave Isaac in the first place, and his promise is that a great nation will be fathered through Isaac by Abraham, then it's God's business to work that out. I'm going to do what God says. You read Hebrews 11 and it says, Abraham reckoned, Abraham conceived this idea that God was even able to raise him up from the dead. I don't know what God's going to do, but I know this. He promised that son is going to become a great nation. So if he asks me to sacrifice him, so be it. And God has some plan. So God's going to be good. In the end, it's going to be good. I don't know. So I'm going to take these horrifying steps in faith. Trusting God. Man, I wish the people of God could get a hold of this. You serve a God who is faithful and good. It is something we rehearse in worship, that he is right, that we can trust him, that we are not in danger to abandon our lives to a heavenly father who is this good. We sang about it this morning. He did not hold back from running into death for you and I. We're going to celebrate it in a few minutes. He did not hold back from sacrificing everything so that you could live. How can we not trust him? It is a battle that we face for our own well-being. Abraham knew that God could not lie and could not fail. Do we? That God had promised that Isaac would be a great nation. So something's going to happen even if I kill my son. What I'm saying to you believers is if we're going to live in this world and not of it, we need to start reckoning with this. We feed our minds and our souls all day long with the way the world thinks. And then we wonder why we can't trust God. We are in this world, but not of this world. We need to stop thinking like the world if we're going to trust God like Abraham trusted God and all of these other stories throughout Scripture. We will tend to feel and think that God has no right to tell me what is right if I keep just digesting what the world has to say to me. I will believe that God cannot be right unless I can understand what he's doing. But if you're going to follow Jesus, 
You have to practice surrender, submission, obedience, sacrifice. You have to practice serving. You have to practice it because there is no way to grow in faith while rejecting God's right over your life. The end of the story, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. (laughs) It's a great name, isn't it? Maybe you need to name some places the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. It is a learning process. This whole journey was a learning process and I will tell you, do you think Abraham knew God differently after this than before? What do you think? So, Many of us aspire to a life that does this, right? Most of our lives look nothing like that, right? Did you know that you don't know God as well if life were like this as you do when life's like this? You don't know the power of God that shows up in the darkest moments. You don't know the goodness of God that you can see so clearly from the top of the mountain. God shows you himself in the ups and downs of life, doesn't he? It was a lesson for Abraham. It was a lesson for Isaac. It was a lesson now written down by Moses for the nation of Israel who wrote this down after they had been through hundreds of years of slavery and the 10 plagues and the deliverance and the Red Sea. And Moses wrote this story down so that the people of God would know how to trust God. He wrote it down so that they would learn. This is what it means to to serve this living and true God. You trust him like this. That's what it means. And it's what the message to us, this is what it means to serve a God like this. You trust him like this. And I would dare say we got, we got a ways to go. But it also previews another event. It was a way that God was teaching his people about what it costs to be good with God. About how one sacrifice can take the place of another. About how one who is on an altar can be removed and something else can be put in its place. It reflects a sacrifice of a father and his son thousands of years later. In the same area, Mount Moriah is believed to be very close to Calvary. When the creator gave himself on a cross for you, took your place, suffered in your stead, so that you could be saved. Not only is he teaching them how to trust God, he's teaching them why God needs you to trust him. Because there's this fundamental reality of life that we were created for communion with God, but we've hopelessly broken that connection. And the cost to restore it was this sacrifice. God himself coming from glory and power in humility down to suffering and and pain and death, rejection, so that we could live. Who does that? Go ask the world, the powerful people in the world, who's ready to sacrifice everything to save someone else. It's not what power does in this world, is it? Power saves itself. 
A lot of the problems in our, in our country come from power wanting to hold on to power. Advantage wants to use advantage for my own good. But Christ, in the world, but not of the world, does it differently. And in that, we are invited into a different way of life. So before we do communion, I just want to ask you these questions. I want to just reflect a little bit on this thing that we have talked about. Does God have the right? Believer, if you are a child of God, does God have the right in your life? And just think about some things. Does he have the right to judge, to condemn, to punish? Does God have the right to do that? Does God have the right to determine what is right and what is wrong? Does he? If, if he wrote in here that we shouldn't, do we just go, ah, oh, well. Does God have the right to ask us to suffer? Read 1 Peter 2 one time, sometime, where it says, Jesus suffered these things and we were called to follow in his steps. Does God have the right to ask us to suffer? Does he have the right to ask us to be poor, have less than we need? Philippians 4. Paul says, I have learned in all things to be content. I know what it is to have much, and I know what it is to be starving. Does God have that right? Jesus said that all those who, who follow him will suffer persecution, will have trouble in this world. Does God have the right to ask us to, to face unfairness, to face pain, to face loss? Does he have the right to ask us to forgive the unforgivable? Does he have the right to ask us to love our enemies? Does he have the right to ask us to sacrifice what he's given us? To give generously to his kingdom and his work and people that need it? Does he have the right to ask us to face betrayal? Injustice? Criticism that seems unfair? Does he ask us, does he have the right to ask us to be faithful in the face of disappointment or seemingly no results? Some of us are frustrated because we are working and working and working and nothing happens, right? Do, does God have the right to ask us to do that and still trust that he's good and he's faithful and that our faith is not misplaced and that God will prove out in the end why he asked us to do it? Does he have the right? We need to act like he has the right. So many applications. Let the Spirit speak to you as a child of God. But I want to say this word of warning. When we refuse to let God direct us, when we, act, when we say with our mouths that God has the right, but we act like he doesn't, we are directed by something else. If it's not God, it's something else. You may follow your desires. You may follow your understanding. You may follow your pride. You may be concerned with your reputation. You may be all about chasing pleasure or ease, leisure. I need a rest. I need a break, wealth, whatever. What happens when we follow another master is they give us just enough to keep us coming back, but never enough to satisfy. And so what they wind up doing is enslaving you to your destruction. And many of us are living in the hopelessness that comes from, I must solve my life's problems on my own instead of God has the right to be the director of my life. You're carrying things many times that aren't yours to carry. They're his. And we need to learn how to surrender them to the one who is able. We are in this world and not of this world because we reject the idea that God does not have the right. Instead, we fully embrace God's right to everything in our lives. Today's question for us as we do communion is, where's God trying to assert that right in our life and are we going to be res respond to him by faith? Let's close our service in a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we receive these elements, 
For us, I pray that it would be more than just a remembrance. I pray that it would be a challenge. I pray that in the act of receiving them, we are also saying, we surrender to you. We don't know what's coming. We don't know how it's all going to turn out. We don't know the pathway that lies ahead. But that's kind of the point. So we trust ourselves to the one who is faithful, to the one whose goodness exceeds all of our understanding and expectation. We put ourselves in your hands. I pray, Father, that as the people of God, we would go out and live in this kind of transformative faith so that your light would shine brightly through our lives to the world around us and to one another. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week.